Let's go ahead and pray and let's do some work. Let's get into this, all right? We're in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, Lord, we desire to come with humble hearts, Lord, hearts that are open to you, hearts that are willing and able to receive from you, and Lord, we give you permission to speak into our lives, Lord, and how good and delightful it is that we can just gather in your name to praise you, Lord, because you are good, and you have saved us, and you've set us free, and you've broken the curse of sin and death, you brought us out of the dominion of sin and darkness and brought us into light and life in Jesus Christ, and we're so glad and and thankful for that. Our hearts just overflow with thanksgiving and praise to you. And Lord, as we open your word, Lord, as we meditate on your scriptures, Lord, we just ask that you would do work in our lives as well, that your spirit would be uh, here today, and that you would bring uh, comfort to those who need comfort, you'd bring conviction to those who need conviction, and that in everything we would grow in the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are studying through Genesis on Sunday mornings, and I really hope you're enjoying our study through Genesis. I am, and uh, in the past two weeks, we've been looking at creation. Uh, the first week we looked at creation, we looked at how creation reveals the nature of God, and the last week we looked at the creation of man, and we talked about what it means that we are created in the image of God, this huge and so important doctrine that we call imago Dei, which it means the image of God, and we talked about the topics of gender, and we talked about the, topics of, uh, the topic of work. Uh, this week... First, we're going to talk about paradise. We're going to talk about life in paradise, the way that God created it before sin entered the world. Then we're going to talk about the fall, the original human sin. We're going to talk about the curse of sin. And most importantly, we're going to talk about the promise of God, of how he was going to redeem fallen creation and resolve this huge problem of sin. And so the section we look at today, one of the best things about this section is that we see the first presentation of the gospel in the whole Bible. It's here in Genesis chapter 3. As soon as sin enters human history, the gospel, the good news of salvation and healing and redemption and Jesus Christ, it's presented right then. And what we need to see in that is that the gospel is not just something which was like an afterthought of God or not something that God reached through a few thousand years of trial and error, you know? Well, that Ten Commandments thing didn't exactly work out the way I hoped, so let's try killing some animals, and we'll see if that works. But if that doesn't work, I have this other thing with the Messiah. We'll just see what works. You know, it's a, it wasn't trial and error. What we see here in, in Genesis chapter 3 is that the gospel is the whole book. Genesis to Revelation, it's all one story, it's a grand story, a grand narrative of the gospel from the beginning to end, and we see this story unfolding before us. We're, that's why we're studying Genesis, is because it is the book of origins. And in order to have a full and complete understanding of the significance of the gospel, of the meaning of the gospel, we need to understand the origin of sin and the origin of the promise of God to redeem the world and defeat evil and sin and death. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verses, we're going to start in verse 8. It says this, Genesis 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every good tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now go down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here's setting up the whole story for us. Uh, God planted this beautiful garden. He placed man there. And in this paradise, there were two trees right in dead center, which, you know, for Adam, that's like his living room. They're right in his living room and right in the middle of the garden, two special trees. This is huge. And we're going to come back to it in just a minute. But before we do, I want to get to the next part. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And... While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Last week we talked about the doctrine of Imago Dei, as I said, that we've been created in the image of God, that we are bearers of the image of God, and that we reflect the image of God in this world. Now, we talked about a lot of different aspects of this, but there's one that we didn't talk about, and uh, I left it out because I wanted to talk about it today in a little bit more depth. And that other aspect of being created in the image of God that I want to talk about today is this, that we were created for community. We were created for community. Now, it's an interesting note to take note of. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 1, when you read the creation account, what do you read? Over and over it says that God made this, and God made that, and he did this, and he did that. But interestingly, there's one place where the pronoun changes, where it goes from being a he to being an us. God says, says that God spoke and he said, let us now create man in our image and after our likeness. So see the pronoun changes from being a me to being an us, from being a he to being an us. And we talked about last week and the week before that this is a reference to the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune nature of God. Augustine had this to say about the Trinity and I find it very interesting and we're going to think about this for a little bit, okay? Augustine had this to say about the Trinity. He said, the Trinity means that the Christian God is a community. And that's what makes him different from every other concept of God that exists, that the Christian concept of God is that he is a community. For all eternity, God has been a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, delighting in each other, loving each other, and communicating with each other. And the Trinity, I love this description of it, it's been described as this, as this kind of cyclical, rapturous interchange of love. 
Now think about that. A rapturous interchange of love. The Godhead, right? It's this singular unit. There is one God, but he is in three persons. And each person of the Trinity is knowing and being known. And loving and being loved by the other persons in the Trinity. And there's just this cyclical thing, this... this um, you know, it's this mutually edifying relationship where they're praising and being praised and enjoying and being enjoyed without any kind of rivalry, without any kind of competition or backbiting or undermining, just this mutually edifying relationship, which I, I love this term that it's a rapturous interchange of love. And because God is a community and he created us in his image, that means that personal relationships are at the very heart of who we are, at the very heart of who we've been created to be, at the very heart of the meaning of life. The pluralness of who God is, it is mentioned particularly, it comes out particularly when he creates man. Because we were created for community, just as he is a community. We live in a very individualistic society, but we need to understand this aspect of being created in his image. It tells us it's not good for man to be alone. Man was created for community as God is a community. We were created in his image. Out of all creation, God makes this very surprising statement over and over. Everything he created, he looked at it and he saw that it was good. And he looks at one thing and sees that it's not good. And that is, it says it's not good that man should be alone. Something's missing. Something's deficient. Something's lacking. And what was it? It was community. It was relationships. Adam was made in the image of one who was a community, and therefore he desperately needed community. And without it, he was deficient. And, and here are the kind of relationships we need. I should have this one up on the, on the oh, screen here. Number one, we need a relationship with God. That should be a given. Each and every person needs to have a deep and personal relationship with God. That is the very essence of why, we're, why, we're, why we were created. And according to Jesus, a relationship with God is the very essence of eternal life itself. Jesus said this in, in John 17 verse 3 in his, what's called the high priestly prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so go back to the idea of this rapturous interchange of love that is the Godhead, that is the Trinity, and understand that you have been invited to take part in that in some way. That you, you, uh, you understand you were created to intimately know God, to be in relationship with him and to experience a part of that rapturous interchange of love. So you and I need a deep personal relationship with God. It's what we were created for. Apart from that, there is no eternal life. Secondly, we need relationships with other people. Now, I, I, I think about this, right? Adam was in paradise. Like, Really? And, and he had everything, really, that people in this world desire to attain, right? He had great food, and he had great natural beauty. There were no power lines blocking his vistas, you know? He had power and authority over creation. He even had a personal relationship with God. And think about this. Adam had a great prayer life. He had a great relationship with God, but yet there was still something missing, he was lonely. 
He was unhappy, even though he's in paradise, even though he has a great relationship with God. You see, even paradise wasn't paradise without friends, okay? Even paradise isn't paradise without loving relationships and companionship. See, we were made for community uh, with other people, with God and with other people. Adam had a lot of animals to hang out with, you know? And there's, there's, there was just something unfulfilling about those relationships, I guess, you know? He had man's best friend, but he still wanted, like, a girlfriend, apparently, you know? And, uh, and something was missing. I mean, it's fun to hang out with, with monkeys. They're, they're silly, but, but, you know, they're terrible at conversation, and their behavior is, well, a bit sophomore-ish, right? So uh, Adam wanted to hang out with somebody who was more on his level, intellectually, so, and the third one, which ties into the second one, the third one is this. We need sincere relationships with people who are different from us. We need relationships with people who are different than us. Sincere relationships. Notice, God puts Adam to sleep and he makes the woman. And Adam wakes up and he is stoked. Like, understandably so, he says, Wow, I've never seen one of these before. And she's, she's like me, but she's different in all the right ways. And he was excited. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is interesting because this is a poem, right? In the Hebrew language, you can see this is a poem. It rhymes. It could have been a song. So here's, here's Adam. He's a romantic guy. He's in love. He's singing a song, writing a poem. And, and God says this. He says, He sees it's not good that Adam be alone. And what does he say? He says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now that word helper, what does that mean? It doesn't mean errand runner. It doesn't mean sandwich maker. You know, it, uh, some translations, you know, the old King James, it says that God made him a help meet. Now, uh, Jeff told me that this reminds him of hamburger helper. So Jeff, I, I have a picture of hamburger helper for you. Um, you know, like the help meat in the hamburger helper makes the hamburger helper taste better. I'm sure that you could spin that some way to make that theologically correct and uh, you could preach that, but, but I don't want to do that today. So the word helper there, it refers to complementariness. That's a hard word to say, by the way. Complementariness. She complimented him. The woman was able to help the man to meet his needs. Why? Because she had things that he didn't have. She was different than him. And the point for us here today is that God gave Adam a companion who was like him, but who was different than him. And in the same way, we need these kind of relationships. Relationships with people who are not just like us, right? Because those kind of relationships, community with people who are not just like us, but who have different backgrounds, different interests, or different stories, they help us to see ourselves more clearly, and they help us to know God in a deeper and fuller way. Because those people have different viewpoints, different insights, different experiences that we can glean from. But notice the last thing it says in this chapter. An amazingly profound statement and something which is really all about what made life in paradise great for Adam and Eve. It says this, Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. They were totally vulnerable. 
They allowed the other one to know them fully and they had no shame. All of us, we have a very basic human desire and need to be known and yet to be loved. But as we're going to see in this next section, when sin enters the world, what does it cause? It causes shame and it causes a breakdown in relationships because of shame. And it causes people to hide from God, but not only from God, but they're covering themselves to hide from each other. Uh, The community broke down because of sin. And, And whereas before they had this totally vulnerable relationship where they allowed themselves to be fully known and they were unashamed, now they're hiding from each other because they are ashamed. But, but the kind of community that we need is community in which we can be totally open and yet totally loved. And that is the culture of the kingdom of God. I love when I read through the Beatitudes. What I see there is I see a culture that Jesus is setting. He's setting the culture of the kingdom of God. This is the culture of the kingdom of God. It's a community in which you can be fully known and yet fully loved. And it is, let me say this too, it is only in Jesus Christ that you can truly experience that. The Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, he knows you completely and fully. Nothing is hidden before his eyes. There is nothing he doesn't know. He knows all your imperfections. He knows all your secret sins that you think nobody else knows about. He knows all your faults. He knows all your weaknesses. And yet he loves you completely. And the ultimate proof of his love for you is that he became a man and he lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you should have died in your place. And he took your shame upon himself on the cross so that you could become righteous in God's eyes so that you could be justified. Justified just as if you'd never sinned. And because of Jesus in Christ, you can be naked and unashamed before God. Your deep human desire to be fully known and yet fully loved is primarily found and primarily fulfilled in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But the other part of this, which is important, is that this is the kind of community that God is calling his body to be, the church. This is the kind of community that he wants us to be. Uh, A community of people who are different from different walks of life, who come together to know God and to make him known. A community where people can be open with each other and yet love each other because of grace. And that kind of community, let me tell you, it helps us to grow in the knowledge of God. It helps us to be transformed into his image. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13. I don't have this one up on the screen. You're going to have to use your thumbs this time. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 speaks of Christian community, which is the church, and it says this, exhort one another daily. Exhort one another daily. Now that implies two things. Number one, it implies people who see you daily. Not just on the internet, where you can kind of control what people know about you or what they don't, but daily, people who see you, people who know what you're really like, really. Uh, And number two, it implies that you have relationships in which you give people permission to speak into your life. You give them authority to speak into your life. We call that accountability. You give them permission to 
to speak into your life, to encourage you, but also to challenge you and, and to even correct you if necessary. These are the kind of relationships that we're talking about. There are a lot of people in our society today who try to do Christianity on their own. You know, they go and they read books and they try to be spiritual by themselves. Um, they go to big meetings where they can be anonymous. But we need community. We were made for relationships. And that's what we see here in paradise in the second half of Genesis chapter 2. Now let's talk about these trees because I think these are very interesting. Two trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, what is that? That is the tree that if you eat of it, you live forever. Now, this is interesting because it seems to me, and I'll say this is my opinion based on, based on what I studied this week, that man was created with the capacity to die, but he was kept alive through faithful obedience by trusting God and eating from the tree of life. As long as they ate from the tree of life, they would live forever, but when they sinned, they were kicked out of the garden, they were cut off from the tree of life, and death begins. And if you check out the book of Revelation, what you see is that at the very end of all things, in Revelation 22, you see the tree of life descending from heaven. It's in the new Jerusalem. So the tree of life is in heaven, and those who love God, those who have become his children through faith in Jesus Christ, they will eat of the tree of life and live forever. But here, right, in the middle of the garden, next to the tree of life, you have another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And why would God even put it there in the first place if he knew what was going to happen anyway, right? And why would he put it there and then tell him not to do anything with it? Well, well, here's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is in a nutshell. It is the opportunity to have autonomy from God. That's what it's all about. It's the opportunity to have autonomy from God. In my studies this week, I ran across this definition of the essence of sin. And, uh, and, and listen to this. It says this. Sin is essentially a grasping for spiritual and moral autonomy from God, which is rooted in unbelief and rebellion. I'll just leave that on the screen for a minute because... I want you to let that sink in. That's pretty deep. I, I don't think I've ever uh, heard a better definition than that. But here's the deal. God only gave him one rule. One rule, right? He said, do whatever you want, but don't eat of that tree. Okay? That's it. Now go and run along and have fun. You know? That's the one thing they couldn't do. He didn't tell them not to kill each other. He didn't tell them not to lie, not to hit each other. Why? Because at this point, they didn't desire to do those things. They didn't have that fallen, human, uh, fallen sinful human nature that we have now. So he told them, one thing and only one thing. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Here's the thing. At this point, they did not have an intimate knowledge of good and evil. They depended on God to give them instruction, and they simply obeyed by faith. That's where they were at. Everything they knew was good because everything that God created, that's how he created it, as good. They had no intimate knowledge of evil. Therefore, they didn't know the difference between good and evil. But what the tree of life and the, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil offered 
every day, right next to each other in Adam and Eve's living room at the center of the Garden of Eden was the opportunity every day to either trust God by faith and live or disobey God and gain an experiential knowledge of evil and die. Some people have this idea, right? They live with this philosophy that, well, I got to try everything once, right? Especially when people go to college, kids go to college. Well, I got to try everything once so that I know what it's like. Well, let me tell you, there are some things that you do not want to have an intimate knowledge of. You're better off without an intimate knowledge of some things. You don't need to have an intimate knowledge of evil. Just take God's word for it. You will be better off. I have a friend, and, uh, and his daughter is on Facebook, and she just graduated from high school, right? So this week, she writes on her Facebook page something to the effect of, uh, I can't learn from anyone else's mistakes. I have to make my own mistakes so I can learn for myself. And, you know, I talked to her after, I said, well, no way, that's really not good thinking. Like, that's not true at all. You don't have to do dumb things to figure out that they're dumb. You can really just take someone's word for it. You know what I mean? That kind of, you, that kind of thinking is folly. You're just going to cause yourself unnecessary pain and, and suffering, and you could waste literally years of your life. That is folly, that kind of thinking. You don't need to know what a hangover feels like. Just take someone else's word for it. It's bad, okay? Uh, You don't need to know what perversion is like. Just take someone's word for it. It's destructive. Don't go there. Just really take someone's word for it. And, And what God's saying with these trees is that the relationship he had with these people needed to be based on trust. He says, take my word for it. If I say that there's something you, you shouldn't have, just believe me that I love you. And I give you everything that is good. And if I withhold anything from you, it's because I know that it's going to be bad for you. You know, anyone who has little kids, I think they automatically know a lot about human nature. Uh, because little kids, they're like, like little humans who haven't learned how to cover up what they really think and feel. You know, they just tell you what they think, they tell you what they feel, and we have to teach them how to be polite, but that takes a few years. You know, so you've got a few years where they're just letting you have whatever they feel like. And they give us some insight into uh, human nature. Because the way that our little kids are with us as parents is similar to the way that, that many people are with God. You know, as parents, we tell our kids not to do certain things. And it's not because we're on a power trip, you know, like we just love to boss little kids around. But it's because we love them and we don't want them to suffer by doing things which we know are not going to end well. You know, so we tell them, don't run with the scissors. Don't put your hand on the stove. Just trust me on it, please. You don't want to have an experiential knowledge of putting your hand on the stove. You don't want an experiential knowledge of running with scissors, you know? Just trust me, it's bad. But there are some kids who will say, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to be free from parental authority. I'm going to do whatever I want. So they touch the stove and they get burned. And, And the Bible tells us that wisdom is to bring your thinking in line with God's word, God's thinking. And folly is to try to be autonomous of God and independent and free from his authority. 
So God is saying here, he's saying, I lay before you good and evil, life and death. Choose life, please. Trust me on this one. He's saying, here's a glass of water. Here's a glass of antifreeze. Don't drink the antifreeze. Just trust me on this one. It will kill you. And, And people are like, yeah, well, you know, that's one opinion. But I'm going to have to try it out to find out for myself. You know, the Bible says that kind of thinking is folly. So here's the setup. We're in the garden. There's these two trees in the center of the garden in Adam and Eve's living room. They pass by them every single day. And every day they have a choice to make. To obey and live or to disobey and die. Let's find out what happens. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. This is a tragedy, right? This is what is known as the original sin. But that, defin- that term, original sin, is only partly accurate because uh, before this ever happened, uh, sin had already taken place. This is really the original human sin. Uh, before this ever happened, in an event which is not part of the, the creation account in Genesis, but which we are told about elsewhere in the Bible, a great rebellion took place. Uh, one of the highest ranking angels named Lucifer, his name actually means shining one. Uh, He rebelled against God because he desired to be worshipped as God. And in this rebellion, we read that a third of the angels rebelled with him, and they became demons. So this is the original sin, the very first one, which is the sin of Satan. And all of us who are born into this world, we're born into a world which is caught up in a spiritual battle. And now we see the introduction of the serpent into our story. This one who is known as Satan, as Lucifer, this fallen angel. And he comes as a liar and a deceiver. That's his M.O. And all of us who are born into this world, you know, we're born into this, into this spiritual battle. And there is this enemy, this liar and deceiver. And the thing about Satan is that he's doomed and he knows it. And so here he is doing his best to mess up everything he can. Mess up God's good creation and to ruin paradise for these people. Let me break this down for you. It begins with a scoff and then it follows with a lie. So the scoff really sets the tone, the ambiance, the atmosphere. And then the serpent follows with the lie. But once the lie has been spoken, the rest depends on the people. They take it from there. So here's, here's the scoff in verse 1. The serpent shows up and he starts talking to Eve. By the way, never a good idea to carry on a dialogue with Satan. Okay? Don't, 
go there. It doesn't end well. We see that here. And so he answers her question, or he asks her a question. He said, did God actually say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, wait a second. Is that what God said? No. No, God did not tell her not to eat any of the trees in the garden. Uh, But look, God said they could eat from all the trees except for one. So what's Satan doing? Twisting God's word, changing it just enough. And that is one of his greatest tactics. We should be aware of his tactics. This is one of his greatest ones, to twist the words of God. That's why it's so important for you and I to know the word of God well. So one of the hardest, uh, hardest things when reading text, black and white words on a page, right, is that you don't hear the intonation of the, of the speaker. You don't hear the intonation in the voice. Here this is interesting, I think in this chapter especially, the intonation, because this word actually, in the, in the original text, this denotes irony. Now what that means is this. If you could hear the intonation uh, with which the serpent says this, it is sarcastic. He is mocking. This is a scoff. He's saying, did God actually say that? Like, seriously? Like if he was writing a text message, he would write it like this. Seriously? Are you kidding me? You know, like, it would be like one of these, like, pfft, you know? Uh, I think that's spelled P-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F. Uh, the serpent is scoffing at what God said. He's actually saying, did he really say that? That's dumb. That's what he's saying. He's mocking, he's scoffing. That sets the tone. It sets the ambiance, the atmosphere. And then after the scoff comes the lie. The serpent goes on to say, you know what? Nah, you're not going to die. And you want to know why God doesn't want you to eat of that tree? It's because he's holding out on you. It's because if you eat of that tree, you're going to be just like him. Now, do you remember what Satan's sin was? I just mentioned it a minute ago. He wanted to ascend to the throne of God to dethrone God. He wanted to take his place. And what is the lie that he tells the woman? He says, you could be just like God. You could dethrone him. And that's why he's worried. He didn't tell you not to eat of the tree in order to protect you. He did it out of fear that you would become like him and that you would dethrone him. The serpent not only directly contradicts the word of God in his lie, but he challenges the very nature of God. And the lie that the serpent told them was essentially this. He said, God is withholding happiness from you. He says, God does not actually love you, but God is suppressing you. He's keeping you under his thumb. He is the enemy of your happiness. If you want to be happy and fulfilled, you're going to have to disregard the word of God. And you're going to have to take your life into your own hands. That is the same lie that Satan speaks to so many people today. And that's what that lie does. You know what it does? It passes into your heart and it creates hostility between you and God. Because rather than seeing God as a loving father, when this lie comes into your heart, you you begin to see God as the enemy of your happiness. One who gives you instructions, not because he cares, but because he is trying to withhold something good from you. And so when God says stuff like, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't lust, because all those things cause death, pain and destruction, Satan comes along and what does he say? He says, God is a liar and nothing will happen to you. Just go on and have a good time and enjoy yourself. 
But remember, after the scoff, which sets the atmosphere, the ambiance, then comes the lie. But once the lie has been spoken, then the ball is in their court. The rest is up to them. Satan could not make her do it. Only she could do it herself. And she, it says that she saw that the fruit was good. Now, do you remember back what we read at the beginning of the chapter? In, uh, I think it was verse 8 or 9 in chapter 2, it says that God created all these trees and every one of them was good for food. Okay, so what does that tell us? That she looked at this and she said, hey, that food looks good. Now, here's the irony. She has an entire garden full of good food. And here's, here's what, what Satan does is that he makes her discontent with the good things that God has given her. And he focuses her attention on the one and only thing that she shouldn't have. You know, uh, what kind of fruit was it? I don't know. And I don't think it matters. I think that it wasn't some chemical in the fruit that opened their eyes. I believe that it was the experience of doing that which was evil that opened their eyes. Here's the weird thing. Here's Eve. She gets drawn in by this serpent. She gets deceived. But along comes Adam. Or maybe he's there the whole time. I don't know. It says that he was next to her. And, and she says, hey, look what I'm doing. I'm eating this fruit that God told us not to eat. You want some? And he's like, hmm, sure, that sounds great. Let's do that. She was deceived. He was not. He totally knew what he was doing, fully aware. Then why did he do it? Well, I don't know him personally, and I wasn't there. But knowing human nature, here's my assumption, here's my guess, that he didn't have the guts to say no. And uh, he, he only had one peer in the whole world, and he gave in to peer pressure. You know, some people uh, are, are willing to sin simply because they aren't willing to go against the crowd. Or maybe in Adam's case, maybe there's just one person who means a lot to you, and you're not willing to tell them no. That's not a good place to be in. That's a really bad place to believe, be in where you're not willing to stand up for what you believe in if it means you've got to be different. A very essential aspect of being a Christian is that Jesus is your Lord, right? And, and what that means is that there will be situations in life where we have to go against the crowd in order to be, and, and we have to be different in order to please the Lord. And some people might not like it. Some people might give you a hard time. But that comes with the territory. Here's another thing. Adam is failing as a husband. And you probably know this, right? But throughout the Bible, the original sin is credited to Adam, not to Eve, even though Eve sinned first. And that's because Adam, as a husband, he bears the weight of responsibility. Where is Adam? What's he doing while his wife is carrying on this conversation with Satan, right? I mean, I don't tell my wife exactly who she can be friends with, but she can't be friends with Satan, okay? That's like rule number one. Sorry, not even on Facebook, no, not friends with Satan. And, uh, and why does, what does he say? Why doesn't he come up and say, no, honey, I'm not touching that stuff because God told us not to do that and we need to trust him and not believe what the snake says of all people. So let's go and let's tell God what happened and let's ask him for forgiveness. But instead, what does he say? He says, sure, honey, whatever you want, I'll do whatever. You know, and that's tragic, and God holds him responsible. Now let's see what happens next from verse 7. We're not going to do the whole chapter today. We're just going to do a little bit more. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. You know what that's called? That's called shame. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. That's called throwing somebody under the bus. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. All right, their eyes were open, they realized they're naked, and they are ashamed, and they hide from God. And and remember the relationship they had at the end of chapter 2? Naked and unashamed? Well, it's all fallen apart right now. What happens when sin enters the world? They are now ashamed. They cover up their nakedness. They try to hide themselves from each other, and they hide from God. That's what sin does. It causes us shame. It causes us to try to cover up who we are, and hide ourselves from other people and from God. And it's really not a rational thing at all to do, to hide from God. You know, he is everywhere. He sees everything. Uh, and, and essentially, I think when God is asking, where are you, and he tries to draw them out, that's what he's doing. He's trying to draw them out. He's kind of playing along with them. He knows where they are. But he, and, and if you could hear his voice, here's another time when it's so important to hear the intonation. Some people have this picture of God where they assume that God's saying, where are you? You know, like an angry father but no I and when I read this what I hear in his voice is a sense of loss and he's like why are you hiding from me what what's going on and God you know God asked Adam what he did and he says the woman you remember the one that you gave me yeah she she gave it to me it's her fault throwing her under the bus throwing God under the bus this is your fault and her fault men let me tell you something that that you probably already know is that pointing fingers is probably like the least manly thing you can do. Let me just say that. Um, if you mess up, then you got to man up. And you got to take responsibility for what you've done. You know what separates men from the boys? It's not pickup trucks and shaving. It's responsibility. All right? There's a lot of boys who can shave, a lot of boys who drive pickup trucks, a lot of boys who are over 40 years old. Men take responsibility. Adam's not acting like a man here. And that's too bad. Uh, But Eve, at least she tells the truth. I was deceived. I blew it. Here's what happens. And and I'm going to close with this. And we're going to pick up next week. We're going to talk about the curse of sin and the covering that God gives. But check this out in verses 14 and 15. We'll close with this. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now to the serpent, he says, you're cursed, but here's what I'm going to do. Now I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is known as the proto-evangelion, which in Greek simply means the first gospel. 
And, and what the, this, is, this is the first appearance of the gospel. It's presented here in the scripture for the very first time. Here's what God is saying. He's saying essentially two things in this prophecy, really. He's saying, number one, I will put enmity between the, you and the woman and her offspring and your offspring. This is not just a prediction that women will not like snakes. Okay, this is uh, more than that. Uh, God is prophesying essentially there will be two groups of people. Two groups of people, one represented by the woman and her offspring and the other represented by the offspring of the serpent and they will be at odds with each other. Essentially this, there will be people who will love the lies of Satan and there will be people who hate the lies of Satan and therefore love God. And he's predicting, prophesying a division. The children of God, the children of the serpent, and there will be enmity between them. Number two, he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Suddenly, the wording becomes singular and specific, whereas before it was general and plural. He says, there is one who will be the seed of a woman, and he will come and he will wrestle with the serpent and evil and death and he will crush the head of the serpent. And the Bible, you know that the Bible is a very patriarchal book. It, when it speaks of the seed of someone, it doesn't speak of the seed of woman, but the seed of man. And I don't need to talk about the birds and the bees. You understand why that is. This is a reference to a son who will be born of a woman, but not of a man, who will come and crush the head of Satan and defeat, along with him, evil and death itself. You know, interestingly, in the history of the world, there's only been one who has been born as only the offspring of a woman and not of a man. Later on, there will be a prophecy about this same one. Through Isaiah the prophet, he says that the virgin will conceive and will have a, ch and will have a child. And his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a prophecy about the coming M Messiah who we know as Jesus the Christ. And, and he's gonna, what he's going to do is destroy all the works of the serpent. And in him, by his stripes, we are healed. He took our shame and our sin upon himself on the cross so that we could be set free from guilt and shame. So we could be set free from fear and death. So we could have the relationship with God which we were created to have, naked and unashamed. And he came to heal the world of the sickness of sin, which permeates every part of who we are, our society, our relationships, even our hearts. And he's coming again to make all things new. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that good news? And, and if you place your hope and your faith in him, then you too will get to eat of the tree of life in heaven and you will have life everlasting. That is the gospel. This is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And if you already know him, then I would encourage you that as we sing this last song, sing it from your heart, just overflowing with praise and thanksgiving. And if you don't know him yet, if you haven't entered into that deep personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then I encourage you to do so today. Stop hiding from him uh, and just approach him with a contrite heart and a repentant heart and he will forgive your sins and he'll give you life everlasting. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you so much. We come to you with hearts that just full of, of appreciation for what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you 
for how you created us in your image, Lord. We thank you that you meet all of our needs, Lord. Physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to have that kind of community that you created us for. That we could image you in this world. And Lord, I pray for those who have suffered shame because of sin, Lord. I pray that in you they would find new life and restoration and forgiveness of their sins. And that you would restore them. Lord, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that we can know you. And thank you so much for the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.